Hey everyone, um, we are uh, walking through the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> greatest sermon ever spoken, you know, and, uh, and we, we come to verse 31, it's a tough teaching, you can tell by the front of your bulletin, what about divorce and remarriage? Um, <clears throat> this topic has been debated for centuries, and uh, there's been differing views on this, different churches approach it different ways. Um, and so I asked Jeremy to preach, but he was unwilling to preach today again. <clears throat> I've done weddings for those who are divorced. I've known, we've all been touched by divorce, you know, every single one of us. Uh, friends, family members, parents, kids, siblings, maybe you've been through divorce. And you know how painful that is. So it, it's a painful thing. I, my le- the least thing I want to do is cause anyone to feel shame. You know, that will be the enemy, Satan would want to shame and condemn for any past mistakes that we've made. And so that's not uh, my, my thought at all. And I pray against that. If you figured out all the answers to this, then I would encourage you to write a book so that I can study it for the next time I preach on this. I, I won't touch on all the issues, but there are some things that are very clear in Matthew 5. Um, and let's start off by reading it. It has been said... Verse 31, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And this goes, husbands and wives, at least in our culture today. But in this culture, it was more divorcing your wife because that's who, who held the power back then. Verse 32, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus began by, saying, by using the phrase, it has been said, and he uses this phrase throughout, um, throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Many in Jesus' day were not able to read or write, and so they were dependent on the many interpretations and teachings of the religious leaders who were studied. And these leaders would have taught by the letter of the law, they would have taught, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery. Well, they said, we measure up there in God's sight. We've never murdered anyone. We've never committed adultery. They taught by the letter of the law. But then, of course, Jesus came and he raised the bar. He said, I'm not just concerned with the letter. I'm concerned with the heart. God is concerned with the heart. He taught by the spirit of the law. Namely, God's original intention behind the law of Moses. He said, but I tell you. Jesus said, but I tell you. He had authority. Who else could have confronted the religious leader and said, but I tell you, who do you think you are telling us? Well, he is the son of God. He had the authority. But I tell you in verse 22 that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister, anyone who is unwilling to forgive someone who's offended you, whether it's their fault or your fault, or then you're in subject to judgment, hellfire, holy smokes. 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in her heart. So Jesus raised the bar. If you want to be righteous by the law, then consider your heart, not just this, not just the letter. And so for our text this morning in verse 32, Jesus once again said, I, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. You raise the bar. You, you think you got it down? 
you have a justifiable divorce, boom, he raised the bar. And so that was Jesus' intention, indicating that none of us can measure up in God's sight by seeking to obey the law. We all fall short, dismally fall short. Jesus gives further clarity to the spirit of the law later on in Matthew 19 by going back to the very beginning of time when he said, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, God's original intention for all marriages is between a man and a woman in a lifetime covenant relationship commitment till death do us part. When two marry, they make a covenant before God and before others and to each other, a covenant promise. It wasn't a contract that could be broken, but it was a covenant never intended to be broken. So why is marriage such a high priority to God? Why is it such a big deal? And we ask that, especially in our culture today. Why is it? Marriage was because marriage was designed by God. He invented it. He said, this is my intention for couples from the very beginning of time in order to establish a foundation for healthy families, a reflection of God's unconditional love to the world, and a picture of God's eternal purpose. Let's look at those. First, it's a uh, secure foundation for healthy families. Uh, To give a little levity to this sermon this morning, there was a preacher who was going to preach it, uh, but in our long service, in the beginning of service, he had four jars, and he he had four worms and four jars. In the first jar, he opened it, and and he poured alcohol. In the next jar, he opened it, and he blew some cigarette smoke in it and capped it off. In the next jar, he he dumped a bunch of chocolate. In the fourth jar, he put really good dirt in there. And at the end of the service, after making his his strong points in the the sermon, he undid all the jars, and he pulled out first three worms and they were dead. And the fourth worm was wiggling and it was alive. What does this tell you, congregation? And so Agnes in the back row, hi Agnes, no, she's not here. Agnes in the back row said, pastor, it says that if we drink alcohol and if we smoke cigarettes and if we eat chocolate in excess, then we will never have worms. No, Agnes, that's not my point today. That's not my point. My point is, well, all right. Well, Ed Sesnit says, every negative factor, be it alcohol, drug abuse, poor grades, promiscuity, other deviances, suicide, criminal behavior, they're two or three times higher in children who come from broken homes than intact homes. These kids are acting out of their hurt. So we need to do something for kids like that, right? Malachi 2, God says, I hate divorce. Through the prophet Malachi, I hate divorce. Not because he hates what it does to people, especially children. Increased fear, anxiety, low self-esteem, you know, all all those negative factors, aggression, abuse, promiscuity. Uh, Kennedy and Newcomb uh, 
they studied divorce, and, and, and they concluded in times past, like in the 1950s, people would advise couples to remain together for the children's sake. But then in the 60s, 70s, in my generation, then it became uh, more of a philosophy that you shouldn't remain together because he, he, they said that uh, your household will be filled with conflict and hate, so it's better to divorce, so kids aren't exposed to that. But now that that generation, my generation has grown up, we are finally admitting that, that uh, grandma and grandpa were right. Stay together. It's far healthier if you can. God's design for marriage is to build a secure foundation for the family and the home. Secondly, it's a reflection of God's unconditional love uh, to the world. Jesus said, they'll know that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Your love will not be like the love of the world. It will be unconditional. You'll love your enemies. You'll, you'll extend, um, ask for forgiveness from people who wronged you even. Um, it, it will be crazy different from the world. And then they will know that you're my disciples. Because God's love is unconditional. Sesnet goes on to say, ask people who have been married for 35 years or more, and you'll almost always get the same response. Yeah, we went through some rocky times. There were times we didn't like each other. I didn't like my mate that much. But we were really glad that we stuck it out because we love each other. We have a relationship with our children and our grandchildren and our God, and that makes it worth it all. Tell couples to stick it out if they can. But we all know, and we all know stories of young couples, they get together and they're like on a perpetual honeymoon for the first few years, and it's awesome. You know, they're happy and they're doing fun things together. Uh, but then one is struck with an illness or um, some sort of injury, leaving them impaired. I think of, I can think of a lot of examples. First person who popped up was Michael J. Fox here, um, who he was struck with Parkinson's, and he, he uh, has difficulty in many ways, as you know. But his wife, Tracy Polon, and he has been, uh, they've been married for 36 years now, still. And this is a Hollywood couple. I mean, this is an anomaly for Hollywood, right? And I don't think they, dis they have any despair or they regret that they've done that. <clears throat> but God... You led me into this marriage to be happy, to enjoy life, to go on long vacations, to go jet skiing, to go to professional sporting events and go dancing. And now this, why would you do that? My response is, what if God didn't call you to marriage to make you happy, but to make you holy? Thirdly, God designed marriage as a picture of God's eternal purpose. When the Bible first opens in Genesis 1 and 2, he establishes the first marriage. And he says about them, what therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Adam and Eve. Jesus' first public miracle was what? It wasn't the healing of the leper, the blind man, or even raising the dead or casting out demons. It was the miracle at a wedding festival. A celebration, they ran out of wine, and Jesus turned water into wine. Shows his priority for marriages, John 2. The Bible closes with the marriage supper of the Lamb, the groom being Jesus, 
to the bride of Christ being the church, Revelation 19. God's priority is for lifelong marriage from the beginning of time to the end of all eternity to reflect his relationship with us. But then the Pharisees challenged Jesus when they heard what his response. If God didn't intend for divorce, then why did Moses command it? Matthew 19, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? In this, according to the law, these Pharisees were thinking in Deuteronomy 24 when Moses said, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, then she departs out of the house and she's free. Jesus, are you saying that Moses was wrong for giving this instruction? To which Jesus responded, he replied, Moses permitted, not commanded, notice, as you say he did, he permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. In that culture, a divorce had become so rampant, and the people living in Jesus' day, they were just divorcing left and right just by saying, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Three times, sign it, boom, you're gone. Jesus raised it. He raised the level of commitment when he said, no, you need a certificate of divorce. Here, um, and I'll explain that in a minute. God, through Moses, sought to regulate divorce from going from bad to worse because women had become victims in this divorce process. In verse 32, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim. She's the victim in in that culture, in that day and age. Because men controlled, they ruled over women as a result of the fall. It can be like that today or sometimes it's just the gender wars going, ruling over each other type of thing. But even into Jesus' day, there were two schools of rabbinic teaching Much like churches, how they differ in theological interpretations and practices. You can take two churches side by side, Christian. Well, in the same way, there are two schools of thought, the Hillel and the Shammai. The Hillel said divorce was permitted for any cause whatsoever, any reason. The word indecency from Deuteronomy 24 can mean anything. It can mean irreconcilable differences. It can mean she burned my dinner. It means she speaks too loudly. She annoys me. It can mean I'm bored with her and there's other women out there that are more attractive and so they would say, I divorce, I divorce, I divorce. And Hillel said, no, it's more than that. We have to get a certificate of divorce and that will make it justified. Similarly today, there's a no-fault divorce law that's almost so simple that you pay a hundred bucks and boom. What God has joined together will end in less than what it costs you to buy a new pair of tennis shoes today. It's become pretty easy. But God didn't allow for divorce in order, I'm sorry, God did allow for divorce in order to protect women from men who would no longer, uh, who would, uh, who no longer valued them. In other words, If this permission were not allowed during the days of Moses, 
and even during the days of Jesus, then women would have to remain in abusive households if you want to be a religious Jew. And, and then they would be, succumb to, they, they would be victims of abuse and mistreatment and hatred and disrespect. Um, and then God says, I'm going to allow for that because your hearts are hard. Your hearts are hard. Today, hearts are hard still. And so I think God may allow for divorce in order to protect women from abuse or vice versa, men and women. It applies to both. 1 Corinthians 5.11, abuse. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral, greedy, or idolater, or slander, a drunkard, a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Jesus is saying that. Don't eat with people like that. If, if you are in danger of abuse or your children in any kind, then you have permission to separate for your own safety against abuse. Also, men could just say, I divorce you. Woman, you're gone. I divorce you. Here's a certificate. There you go. And, but, and women in that culture would have been, they would have had two options. Go back to the household of your father. And many times fathers said, no, 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 you're not coming back here. Then it left them only one other option. Live in the streets. Be abandoned to the streets. Earn a living for yourself. And typically that was selling yourself. Like the woman cut at the well most likely. Another uh, uh, form of abuse would have been false accusation. In cases of divorce, people might have automatically concluded that, well, this woman was certainly immoral. If her husband divorced her, then she's immoral. She deserves to be on the streets. But Moses allowed for certificates of divorce, called for them, that... uh, they would have been required with two or three witnesses in order to protect the women's reputation and future. The complete word study New Testament in Greek said this, anyone who was unjustly divorced might acquire the false stigma that they were guilty of moral misconduct. For this reason, the Lord insisted that the Old Testament provision in Deuteronomy 24 be adhered to. The person that unjustly dismisses an innocent mate ought to clear them of guilt by providing them with a bill of divorcement. Again, for the women's protection. And then the Shemai said divorce was only permitted in case of immorality. The word is porneia, sexual immorality. It means adultery. It means incest or prostitution, sexual abuse, and sometimes pornography addiction. It comes from the word porneia. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. Again, divorce was permitted, but it wasn't required or even commanded. God's ultimate goal for any marriage is to remain intact through repentance, forgiveness, healing, restoration. That was his ultimate goal for raising the bar. And I believe there is one more exclusion um, that allows for divorce, and that would be abandonment. And uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, If any brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she's willing to live with him, 
he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who's not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. In other words, your household is holy because you as a believer are a conduit for God's grace. God's grace, God's grace given to your family members. Verse 15, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The believer or the brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Sometimes that won't be the case, and the unbeliever will abandon. And so permission is then granted in those cases. Well, how do we approach divorce in the church? Well, what is our thought process? Steve Hickey's commentary cites John Stott, who says, he never speaks to a, I'm sorry, John Stott as a pastor never speaks to a person about divorce until he has first spoken to them about marriage and reconciliation. He says, a good discussion on marriage and reconciliation in many cases makes a discussion on divorce unnecessary. Many people go by the three R's. If you're having marital trouble, Struggles, then repentance, reconciliation, and remain single until you are emotionally in a healthier spot where you can decide. Rather than the fourth hour would be rebounding, you know, getting, getting married on the rebound with all of your baggage, you can, we can carry it into the next relationship. In other words, we must strive for healing because God doesn't desire for us to have a better marriage He desires for us to have a new marriage with the same spouse. Okay, so that's the first half where we look at the, or the first two-thirds, where we look at God's priority for marriage, right? But what about this? What if I've been divorced? Is it too late? Can we unscramble the eggs? No. Malachi says God hates divorce, But God through Malachi didn't say God hates the one who is divorced. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It is not the unforgivable sin. Psalm 103, God is always the same. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sins from us. Romans 8.1, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. All of our sins, mistakes, unrighteousness will be forgiven and they will be cast as far as the east is from the west. His mercies are new every morning. We have a new start every morning we wake up. God chooses not to remember our sin and our mistakes in the past. What if I've been divorced and remarried for any other reason than the ones that we cited earlier? Does it make me an adulterer or adulteress for the rest of my life? Is that what that means? Well, let me ask you this. What do you think God thinks of King David, who ended up stealing another man's wife and then murdering him, and then conceiving a a child named Solomon, who became the king of Israel as well, King Solomon? The conclusion of David was... This man, this king, David, is a man after my own heart, God says. Even after doing all that, 
Did he remain an adulterer the rest of his life in God's eyes? No. He was forgiven because David had a heart that repented, confessed, and submitted to God. How about the woman at the well who had five husbands and was now living with a sixth? What did Jesus offer her? I offer you some advice, woman. God hates divorce. Did he say that? Woman, you must remain single for the rest of your life. You, got, you dug your hole, you got to live in it. Or you made your, whatever. I was going to use the bed analogy. You made your bed, you got to sleep in it. Uh, he didn't say that. Instead, this woman left. She for, even forgot her water jar. She went back and said, man, this man's amazing. He loved me unconditionally. Uh, I've never felt such love by anyone in my life. It changed her life. It transformed her. Or how about Rahab, the prostitute? Um, she was in Jesus' lineage, along with David and Solomon and uh, many others, of Ill repute, Ill repute because of their forgiveness and repentance. Corey Tenboom writes, There is no pit so deep that the love of God does not go deeper still. Ah, okay. So we, we're looking at God's perfect will, his desire. We, we looked at how we mess up and God's grace covers it. So that means I can divorce and I can just repent and ask for forgiveness and God will give me a new brand new day and all will be good. So don't have to make too much about divorce today then. No, because the Apostle Paul says we reap what we sow. Galatians 6, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from that flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. In other words, consequences are incredibly painful. They have ripple effects that can affect generations to come. King David, they lost their first child, King David and Bathsheba, before conceiving of Solomon. Very painful, filled with lots of regrets. King Solomon became the next king, though, but then he began to intermarry all these foreign women, and, and he, he was disobedient to God's command, right? And so what happened? Well, he led the nation in, into corruption, incredible, great suffering because of his sin as king. Yeah, we're forgiven, but we will still reap what we sow. You know, if I, I'm a pastor, if I go out and drink and, and get in an accident, then I'm going to go to jail, you know? I'll be forgiven, but I'll be sitting in jail thinking, ah. So, last thing, if you're considering divorce, let me encourage you to consider a few things. First, know that God can heal any marriage. Trust in him. If anything, separate for a little bit, a time. Separate and see what God can do in both of your lives. Remember, God doesn't want to give us better marriages. He wants to give us new marriages with the same person. And I remember Ann Bell, who, um, she was, influenced me as a secretary in the high school, and I was a 17-year-old punk, and, and she invited me to this Bible study, and then she invited me to her home with a bunch of other students, and she led Bible studies there in worship times, which led to a prison ministry group that summer and all that, and she had great, profound impact on, on who I've become. Ann Bell's husband was a drunk. 
He would come home during the Bible studies. What are you doing? You kicked in here. And he'd, he'd walk upstairs. And um, he was like that for years. I think it was 17 years she remained with Russ because he didn't want to leave. And she was obedient to Scripture. 17 years later, Russ came to the end of the rope and he repented. And his life was transformed. If you're to meet Russ today, he is now a leader of the church. And their marriage is tremendously healthy. Secondly, reach out for help. Marriage is very hard, very, very hard and messy. But in long-term studies, couples were at the point of getting divorced. Only 22% said they went on to be healthy and happy with their new spouse. Whereas 86% decided to stick it out, and they said after five years, we're much happier together now. Reach out for help. uh, Thirdly, you you begin to change you with God's help. Don't wait for your spouse to change. We're always pointing the finger at the other person. Boom, boom, boom. It's your fault, your fault. Well, John Maxwell says, practice the 100% principle. Find the 1% you agree on in a difficult situation and give up 100% of your effort. You be the one to change. It takes one person to change the marriage. And then finally, seek God together. Ask God. Ask uh, the family of God, people in the church, your brothers and sisters in Christ, to pray for you, um, to to counsel you, um, to receive godly counsel. So that's God's ideal. That is God's ideal. But we, many of us know people who have who have been um, who are able to do God's ideal. I forgot to mention this. One last thing. If at all possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. You can do all the right things as a partner in a marriage. If, it, if possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with your spouse. Sometimes it's not possible. Sometimes it's not possible because they have a free will as well. So know this, God is merciful. His mercies are new every morning. If you feel condemned... Right now, then that's not of God. That is of Satan, who is the accuser of the believers. He wants to condemn you, condemn us. The Holy Spirit convicts us to obedience, to lead us to life. Conviction is different from condemnation. They may feel the same in some ways. You have to discern the difference. Conviction is the Holy Spirit. Condemnation, shame, uh, false guilt like that is, is of Satan. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a God of mercies. Every morning, you let us start anew. And wherever we are, whether we're in the dumps and in the dark shadows of death, Lord, you pull us up and you hold us and you, you restore us, Lord. When we look to you and we thank you, Lord, that you are a God of grace and this church is a God of grace as well. We're a bunch of messy people, a bunch of broken people and whatever issue that we're struggling with at this point, but you are a God who takes where we are and, and you transform us when we um, avail ourselves to you. So we do that this morning during this closing song. We give it all to you. We, we put it on your altar in Christ's name. Amen.